You are listening to an audio sermon from Sovereign Grace Church Toronto. For more information, visit sovgracesto.org. Well, some gifts that you receive are not only for you. Think of a birthday cake. You look like a friendly crew here. I am sure that if I was in your home on your birthday and you received a nice big birthday cake on your kitchen or dining room table, I hope you would share some with me. Some gifts are not only for you. And some stories are not rightly understood until the end. I met a man once who lived in Bosnia, who read through the whole Bible and became a Christian when he got to the New Testament. It was near the end of the story that he started to understand how the whole thing fits together. Or for those of you who like movies, you may know of that movie, The Sixth Sense. If you don't know it, it's okay. You get the point. Some stories cannot be really understood until the end. Well, the book of Jonah is like that. The book ends with this question, should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. And many of us hear that and we think, what's up with the cattle? (laughs) Well, when Jonah heard the question, he was stewing with anger, wishing God would have punished those 120,000 people. But let's shift our focus away from us and Jonah to the first readers of the book, the Hebrews who would have received this written scripture to learn from. When they come to the climax of this book and they read of people who don't know their right hand from their left, they would have known what God was asking Jonah. You know, their Bible, the first five books or six, seven books, was full of references to this language of the right hand and the left. In Deuteronomy 17, 20, the king of Israel shall read the law all the days of his life so that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left. God's law is the straight way. Turning to the right hand or to the left means not following God's law. You may be familiar with Joshua 1.7. God says, be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left. You see, the Israelites had the light of God's word to guide them. But the Ninevites don't even know their right hand from their left. They don't know God's law. They don't know anything about the God of Israel. They don't even know his name is Yahweh. They don't know anything. The first book of Jonah speaks of their evil. They weren't just without the knowledge of Yahweh. They were evil people. And we don't know exactly how evil. I 
was reading a helpful commentary that honestly says it's tough to perfectly match Jonah with the ancient Near Eastern archaeological evidence of all of these kings who would boast of their cruelty. You can travel to Britain and go into museums and read uh, of these artifacts. And they would boast of skinning people and cutting off ears and heads and gouging out eyes and burning vast numbers of people alive. We know that just a, a generation or two later, in Scripture, in God breathed Scripture in Nahum, God speaks in Nahum 3 1 through Nahum the prophet Woe to the city of blood! full of lives, lies, full of plunder, no end to the prey. That means no end to the number of victims. In fact, that prophecy also ends with a question from God. Chapter 3, verse 3, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. Or sorry, that's verse Nahum 3.3. Nahum 3.19, this is the question. God says, for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? So we're talking about people with no knowledge of Yahweh, but we're talking about people comparable to, think Nazi Germany. Think modern day ISIS. So how would you answer God's question if God were to ask you, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? This is how the book ends. And it's actually this, 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 this final portion of Jonah is the key to unlocking the message of the whole book. So welcome to a very small but heavy book on the nature of God's mercy. My goal this morning is to present God's mercy to you as it's found in this book there are no 10 steps to becoming merciful. What I, I, I used to live in Virginia, and the Blue Ridge Mountains are there, and as you drive along the highways, there are these lookout spots where you can just look at the incredible mountains and valleys, and it's just huge and awesome. You just look out. And in the Bible, there are many lookouts at God's mercy. All I want to do this morning is for us to look out from the book of Jonah and see God's mercy. We're going to marinate in God's mercy. Think about the mercy of God that's found in this little book. That's my goal, and I hope and trust that as we marinate, we will be seasoned. We will behold the mercy of God, but I hope that we will become more merciful by just marinating in his mercy. When it comes to the directions of this message, first we're going to survey the first three books at a very rapid speed. You can follow along in your Bibles if you like. Jonah 1 to 3, a survey of God's mercy. And then we slow down in chapter 4 and we're going to consider 
this truth, that God's mercy is scandalous and it's for you. (laughs) And then secondly, God's mercy is scandalous and like that cake, it is not only for you. When I say scandalous, I mean it's something shocking, something that's, that, 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 that will cause some people to be outraged because of the size of it and just how indiscriminate it is. That is what I mean by scandalous. So here we go, first survey of Jonah 1 to 3. Let us behold the mercy of God in these different scenes in this story. Scene number one, God commissions Jonah. He calls him to go to Nineveh, but Jonah runs away. He goes as far away from Jerusalem as he possibly can go. And how does God respond to Jonah's unfaithfulness? Well, welcome to scene two in chapter one. Jonah with the Gentiles. When I say Gentiles, I mean non-Jews. In this section, the Gentiles are mariners, that is seamen. They spend most of their time at sea. So how does God respond to Jonah? The Jonah who ran away, well, God goes after him and he causes a terrifying storm that threatens Jonah's life and the lives of the mariners as well. And consequently, they cast lots to find out who's responsible for the storm and they learn it's Jonah. The mariners are terrified, but Jonah, who still won't even talk to God, would rather die As a prophet of Yahweh, he would rather die than call out to God. So he tells them, think about that. The prophet of Yahweh, instead of praying for these biblically illiterate Gentiles, tells them to throw him overboard. He tells them his name, it's Yahweh, and that the storm will calm down. So they do, they throw him overboard And the storm calms down and they become worshipers of God while Jonah sinks to the bottom of the sea. Welcome to scene three. Jonah finally prays to God. But that's when he hits rock bottom. That's when he calls out for God to save him and Instantly, the very moment this runaway prophet calls out to Yahweh, instantly, mercifully, God is there with a large fish to save him. And guess what God does? Again, mercifully gives him a second chance. So God commissioned Jonah. uh, Jonah was with the Gentiles and Jonah prays to God. There is a parallel structure that the author uses to put this book together. So just like in the first scene, God again commissions Jonah. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of Yahweh came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. So this time, Jonah obeys. He goes to Nineveh. But here's the question for the reader. How obedient is he really? Let's see in scene five. 
Again, Jonah with the Gentiles. This time, not the Mariners, but the Ninevites. Chapter 3, verse 4, all Jonah says is, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Many of you, if, if you grew up in a church, you're familiar with this. This is the shortest sermon in the Bible. Many of us grew up thinking, oh, that's cool. What a good sermon. This was not a good sermon. Prophets of Yahweh are always supposed to say, like Moses did to Pharaoh, thus says Yahweh. I'm speaking on behalf of Yahweh. But he doesn't want them to even know. Unlike the mariners, these guys don't even get to know the name of the God they're to call out to. That's the first problem with the sermon for a prophet at this point in the Bible. And secondly, unlike the prophets of Yahweh, in the prophetic literature, he gives no instructions for how to repent. None. That is totally uncharacteristic of Yahweh's prophets. You know, like Joel Osteen, you've heard of these preachers who try to make the message more palatable? Easy. Jonah's trying to make it as hard as he can. He does not want these people to respond positively. He doesn't want them to repent, but they do. The Ninevites repent. Look at verse 5 in your Bibles. The people of Nineveh believed God. That's the language that's used to describe Abraham's faith. (laughs) They believed just that little bit of knowledge. And they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And look at God's response to their repentance in chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw that they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So God was pleased with their repentance. But what about Jonah? Well, look at chapter 4, verse 1. Our survey is just about over. (laughs) It displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. You'll notice if you're using an ESV, there's a little number four in your Bible. Do you see it in there? If you're using an ESV, you see a little number four. And at the bottom of the page, it gives you the literal reading in the Hebrew, which tells us it was exceedingly evil to Jonah. God had done something that was exceedingly Exceedingly evil. Well, welcome to Jonah 4. That's our survey. It's a heavy book about scandalous mercy that when you see it as it is, it's unsettling. There seems to be something wrong about it. It can even cause people to be angry. Well, here we go. Our, the second truth. We've looked at the survey and all I wanted you to see, I just wanted us to marinate in the mercy of God and the narrative of this book and we, we find ourselves now in scene six. Remember Jonah prayed from inside the fish. And now Jonah prays again. The author has this parallel structure to the book. And we're going to look at this prayer and see that God's mercy is scandalous. 
And I would like to exhort us from this passage. I want you to know that this mercy is for you. Look at Jonah's prayer. He says, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew, in the narrative, the king of Nineveh says, who knows? <laughs> who knows? God might, repent. God might relent of the disaster. Brilliantly written narrative. Yeah, there is someone who knows. Jonah knew. Jonah knows. I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. His, this prayer is a confession of his fear and he is quoting scripture in his prayer. I love Don Whitney's book on praying scripture. It's a very helpful book. You can use scripture in very positive, good ways. We encourage that at our church. Satan also uses scripture, and Jonah's using scripture in his prayer. He's quoting from Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, but he omits one of the character attributes of God that is highlighted there. You know, when I ask my son at night sometimes, you know, getting ready for bed, you guys, I'm sure many of you have your routines with your young children, I will often ask, did you brush your teeth and go to the bathroom? And sometimes I hear this from one of my sons, well, I brush my teeth. You know what that means, right? The silence speaks. That means he has not yet gone to the bathroom. Well, sometimes silence speaks. And in Jonah's prayer, his silence speaks. There's one thing he will not quote from Exodus 34, that God will by no means clear the guilty. You see, that's the issue Jonah's wrestling with. They're guilty. Aren't you just He's saying you're not just. One author writes that Jonah thinks God's indiscriminate mercy has undermined his justice. His indiscriminate mercy has undermined his justice. And it's so disturbing that Jonah in verse 3 says, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah would rather die than live with the knowledge of God doing this exceedingly evil thing of having mercy on the Ninevites. What a very different prayer than Moses who says, God, don't destroy Israel even though they are sinful and they are idolaters. Take my life and save them. Moses is a man who had marinated in God's mercy and he reflects it as one of Yahweh's prophets. Jonah is the opposite. This is a prophet who clearly hasn't been marinating in the mercy of God enough. Jonah can't handle God's mercy. 
But the interesting thing is he knew what Yahweh's like. He says, I know you're just so merciful. This is exactly what I feared. But do you? Some of us are unlike Jonah, I think, in the sense that we're actually not that confident that God's mercy is so immense. But his mercy is for you. There's a man, some of you who read history, you may know, uh, heard of a man named Duk. He was the head of the Khmer Rouge secret police in Pol Pot's Cambodia. Some of you may have heard of him. Apparently, he turned to Christ. And when he did, he confessed to the responsibility of at least 12,000 deaths. 12,000 Time magazine wrote an article on him. Of course, some people doubt his conversion, but the pastor who baptized him said that he had changed 180 degrees and that he had turned from a man full of hatred to a man of love. Now, of course, I don't know the story and I'm not going to give my commentary on it. But how well do you know God's heart? Do you think that's the sort of thing that God might do, save a man who is responsible for 12,000 deaths? You know, it's possible that the king of Nineveh himself was responsible for more than 12,000 deaths. And in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus affirms the authenticity of the repentance of these Ninevites who lived in this generation. He says that the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, condemning the Jews of Jesus' time, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. You know from Psalm 1, those who stand at the judgment are safe and secure. In Titus 3, verse 5, Paul writes that God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. We were singing about this earlier in our service, and I want to say it again. God does not save us because of our Bible reading, our inclination to do what is right, because of our genealogy. He does not do that. It's not based on what we do. It's, it's, it's by his mercy. Romans chapter 9, Paul writes, God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God. He just just has mercy on people. And it's indiscriminate. And in Romans, Paul teaches very clearly in the beginning of that book that we are, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if you're a Christian, if you truly are, you You believe that you deserve the cross, don't you? 
You, you, you have to believe that you deserve the cross in order to be saved. You, you have to believe that you deserve wrath, that you are not good, that you deserve to be shamed on a Roman cross, that you are just that evil yourself, that you deserve God's wrath. Like, you can't be in Christ unless you believe that. I can't unless I believe that of myself. We believe that we're saved not based on anything we do. Of course, this is mysterious. We must have faith in Christ, but we are saved by the work of Christ, by his death on the cross, by his resurrection. He is the good shepherd, and we find ourselves hearing his voice. We can't make ourselves hear. We just, we just, we're saved by God's mercy. We hear and we find ourselves coming. It's, it's, it's mercy. It's free absolutely free, undeserved mercy. Wow. And it's for you. Christian, I'm so glad. If you are a Christian, I'm, I'm with me. Can't, we can sing hymns like this. Aren't, isn't it so good to sing? Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress. I have nothing to bring. Helpless. I remember when God saved me, I was on my knees saying, I'm a sexually immoral liar. I've made a mess of my life with a godly dad in a Christian home and raising the scriptures and hearing sermons every Sunday. I've gone my own way. I've ruined it. And I beat my chest and said, God, have mercy on me. And he did. Vile, I to thy fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. I think Jonah, I think Jonah has forgotten how vile he is apart from the mercy and help of God. He lived before the cross but he seems to think that he's done something to earn God's mercy or that the Ninevites have crossed certain lines, that they're beyond scope of Yahweh's mercy. Well, he's dead wrong. God's mercy is so, so immense. It's unsettingly, it's unsetting. It seems scandalous. But it's for you. It's for you. And I know some of you may be here, this is going to be short because I'm just about ready to switch gears and go into that last scene, but I must say this. I'm assuming in a crowd this size that there must be some of us who've fallen away from the Lord. And you're thinking, oh, pastor, I know. I know. I've heard this and I've come to God again and again and again and thousand times but you know what just i just keep i just keep going the wrong way jonah's running away from god and god's there gives a storm jonah doesn't want to talk to god i'd rather die god's there with a fish to save him in the bottom brings him up on the sea god jonah preaches again and he's full of anger for what god's doing and he's going to pout and he doesn't like what's going and god's just right there knocking on his shore saying hey can we talk why are you angry God is relentless in his mercy. 
And I heard this morning in my own church, Pastor Julian preaching, and he made comment on the father in Luke 15 when that lost son runs away, how the father just runs to that son when he comes back and throws a party. So for any of you in here who are saying, no, I've just, I've gone too far or I've done it too many times, you need to know, like Jonah, yeah, God is that merciful. But unlike Jonah, embrace that mercy. Lastly, we've looked at Jonah's prayer and we come to scene seven, the the final object lesson on God's mercy. So you can see it kind of hangs off the end of this parallel structure like a dog tail or something. It's like that sore in the structure. It doesn't fit, does it? It's meant to wave and call for your attention because that's where the key is to understanding the message of the book. So this is the lesson of the plant where God is really getting Jonah to think about, hey, this mercy is not only for you. Verse five, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. And here's God's object lesson. Verse six, now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was now exceedingly glad because of the plant. The plant saves Jonah from discomfort. So the plant symbolizes mercy. The plant symbolizes mercy. Verse seven, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. So the worm destroys the plant, so the worm symbolizes judgment. Verse eight, when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. So the worm and the wind, sounds like a C.S. Lewis book or something, the, the, the worm and the wind symbolize judgment, but the plant symbolizes mercy. Now, Jonah, what does he like? For himself, what does he like? Mercy. He likes the plant. He's exceedingly glad when he gets mercy for himself. It saves him from scorching heat. But Jonah doesn't like it when the mercy is removed. He doesn't like it when the plant's removed. You see, he actually doesn't like judgment on himself. He likes mercy. He doesn't like it when judgment triumphs over mercy. He gets angry, angry enough to die. Now remember, Jonah had earlier rejoiced when God mercifully saved his life from the bottom of the sea. But, now he, but then in chapter three, he got angry when God was merciful toward the Ninevites. Look at verse nine. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Jonah said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor. You didn't work for it. 
nor did you make it grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Look closely at the beginning of verse 10 if you have your Bible. Jonah, you pity the plant. And then look at the beginning of verse 11. Should I not pity Nineveh? In other words, Jonah, you're distressed by the removal of mercy from yourself. Should I not be distressed by the thought of removing my mercy from the Ninevites? Do you hear the object lesson? My mercy is for you. But it's not only for you. It's for people you find hard to love. And for people who don't know anything about me. So I want to think about this in two directions quickly before we close. People, I find it hard to love. People who've sinned against me. But these Ninevites are not just evil Ninevites. They're people who don't know their left hand from their right. So they know nothing about me. The application functions in two ways. God's mercy is for those who sin against you. I've heard one preacher say that every time someone sins against you, I know it's hard to believe this, but it is a gift in one sense. Obviously, God hates sin. But when, you are, when we are sinned against, it is an opportunity to extend mercy and to reflect your God. Without downplaying the sinfulness of sin, it is true that when we are sinned against, in God's sovereign wisdom, we have an opportunity for those of us who know scandalous mercy to share that scandalous mercy. Remember the birthday cake. On what basis do we start blocking people from having pieces of that cake? I remember Pastor Justin Galati preached on kindness the last time I visited. And he was exhorting us, saying, On what basis? When will you dispense with being kind to a person? And it's the same question tonight. In in our lives, what does someone have to do? At what point do we say, no longer will my heart be merciful? At the Lord's table, all kinds of sinners come. From every tribe by faith in Jesus, they're saved, they're baptized, they're washed, cleansed, and they come to the table. They're invited to eat in remembrance of him who died for them. So, do we dare say, no, I will not extend mercy to you. I don't want you to have that mercy. We were singing earlier of Jesus interceding for us from Romans 8. Romans 8. 
So if Jesus is using his mouth to intercede and pray for a fellow believer who has sinned against us, what shall we do with our mouths? Shall we dishonor them with our words? Should we harden our hearts and let bitterness grow? I think from Jonah, we got to let the noonday sun of God's mercy shine on us and reflect on God's mercy to us and let it soften us. The roots of bitterness and gossip by the Spirit can be uprooted. And as we seek with his help to be merciful to others because his mercy is not only for us. Not only is it God's mercy for those who sin against us, God's mercy is also for those who've never heard the gospel. Who does God have pity on? Verse 11 says the 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left. God is saying, should I not pity that large group of people who don't know anything about me? This has been the story of Jonah. The mariners. Why is the author writing about these mariners in chapter one? These Gentiles, they don't know anything about Yahweh. And they're paralleled with these Ninevites who are also Gentiles who know nothing about Yahweh. And the message for God's chosen people is, hey, should I not have mercy on all these people who know nothing about me? You know, someone greater than Jonah has come. That's what Jesus said of himself. Someone greater than Jonah is here. And Jesus didn't resist the Father's will to go low. Think of Philippians 2, to take on human flesh and die and die on a cross and go solo. No, he embraced it with all his heart. And he went down, not just into a fish for three days, he went into the heart of the earth. And when he rose from the dead, he was determined to get the gospel to the ends of the earth, not just to one people group, but to people groups all over the world. When I was 22, I heard about millions and millions of people with no access to the gospel. And when we read this book today, it's true, most of us will not be called to uproot and leave, but some of us will. And regardless, as churches, we certainly need to let God's, we need to marinate in God's mercy. Not just so that God could help us to be merciful toward our spouses and our children and our family members and our co-workers who sin against us because Jonah arms us to be merciful in these contexts. But the book of Jonah is actually saying more than that. God is actually saying, I really care about people who know nothing about me. (laughs) And that mercy is not just for us. I'm so happy there's a Gospel Coalition conference. I'm so happy for authors like C.J. Mahaney and D.A. Carson and John Piper and the list goes on and podcasts and healthy churches and I can go on a sabbatical and visit a dozen churches where the gospel is preached in Toronto. More than a dozen. And we have so much and we need to be full of thankfulness, not guilt. 
But there are churches meeting today in other parts of the world where someone might be standing up and saying something that they heard about Jesus and they don't yet have the Bible in their language. They don't have one Christian book in their language. And a book like Jonah exhorts us with God's help and with wisdom to say, God, what can we do to make a difference? Who can we partner with? Yes, here in the GTA, but the Lord hasn't come back. He still has his people to the ends of the earth. This, tonight I'm going back to my church to talk about a number of practical things people could do in order to be more engaged in foreign missions. But that's a whole other lesson. My goal today was to take us to a nice spot like the Blue Ridge Mountains and to look at this awesome scenery. My goal today was for us to look at God's mercy in the book of Jonah. It's relentless, it's scandalous, it's for you, but it's not only for you I hope in this time we've just marinated in God's mercy. I hope that you felt God's mercy. I hope that the sun is shining and your skin is a little more tanned. In other words, I hope that, 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 that the word will take root in your hearts as you leave here today. The, books, the Bible says in Romans 15 that this is why God has sent Jesus, so the Gentiles would glorify God for his mercy. And may we do that together as we sing, but let us pray before we do. Father, every time I reflect on your mercy, I am humbled. I can't do it, I can't be merciful without your help. Thank you for your great mercy that you've displayed in your son, Jesus. And thank you for the gift of the Spirit who mercifully helps us to understand your mercy, to see your mercy, and helps us to become merciful. We pray and ask for the Spirit to apply these truths to our word so that we would enjoy your scandalous mercy and that we would extend it and share it with others. In Christ's name we pray, amen.